Amen. Man, how lucky, looking for my podium, uh, how lucky are we to trade out one Aaron worship pastor for another Aaron worship pastor? And they're both outstanding. I was joking with them about that before, but it's actually serious. Thank you, Aaron, seriously. Um, I love that first song we sang, All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name, because that is essentially what we gather here to do every Sunday. We don't come here to hear songs as good as they are, and we don't come here even to listen to me or Nathan talk. If that's what you came here for, I'm sorry. We come here so that we can stand side by side and look at Jesus together and say, I'll hail him. There is nobody like him. So in the new year, that is what we wanna do. We want to stand side by side with one another and say, hail the power of Jesus' name. There's nothing like him. So uh, we have a lot to do this morning. So I'm not gonna waste any time. Our text this morning is going to be in the book of 1 John. So 1 John, toward the back of your Bible, before Revelation, right after 2 Peter, and in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, here's what John writes. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, this probably seems like a strange passage to start the new year with. I doubt over the years that any of us have added to our resolution list, confess my sins more. Okay, that's probably way down at the bottom of the list. This time of year isn't about remembering the ways we failed to do great things last year. It's about forgetting the things we failed to do last year. When I sit down to do my resolutions, I'm thinking to myself, all right, this, this is the year. I'm gonna really get it this year, because this time, I'm serious. I was listening to a, a podcast recently, and they quoted a, uh, a Zen Buddhist monk named Shunryu Suzuki. I Googled how to say his name, but Shunryu Suzuki said once, each of you is perfect the way you are, and you could use a little improvement. And I, I love to hear that, that sounds great, but that is basically what goes through my mind every New Year's. When I'm sitting down, I'm thinking to myself, I mean, you're pretty good, Evan. Like, I, I don't know, a solid six, seven on the scale of life. Like, you're doing fine. You could use some minor improvements, but you can manage that. You'll make it, you're good the way you are. 
And if I had to guess, most of us probably think that same way too. And it sounds ridiculous when I'm saying it, you're like, a seven? He's like a four, maybe a five if I'm being generous. But all of us think this way, and it sounds ridiculous to say it out loud, but it's what we go through. It's a nice thought that we're perfect the way we are and just need a little tune-up along the way. And if we just calibrate just right, things will turn out better this year. But at least everybody else, if you ask somebody, it is painfully, obviously apparent that we are not perfect the way we are and we don't just need a little tune-up. I'm sure if you asked your neighbor, they would let you know that is the case for you. We're never going to get better in our lives by pretending we're fine the way we are or that if we just try hard enough, we'll finally get there. And the Bible, being totally realistic in its approach and in its topsy-turvy way, says that better doesn't come through trying harder, but it actually kind of sneaks up on us when we stop trying and step into the light with God. That's what John is saying to us in this passage. The letter of 1 John was written to a group of Christians who had watched some of their dear brothers and sisters wander away from the faith. And these Christians, these what Paul calls false teachers, false Christians, were basically saying that we are fine the way we are. You're good. It doesn't really matter what you do, good or evil. And God, God is just like a kindly old man. He's just happy to tune you up when you need a little tune-up. And they were saying, this is the real Christianity. So for the remaining Christians, the faithful few, they're sitting there going, are we resisting sin and being so serious in our pursuit of God for no reason? Does God really not take sin that seriously? Are we wrong? Are they the real Christians and we're not the real Christians? And so John is writing back to these people to give them just complete confidence that they are on the right path. They are the real Christians following the way of the light. And in so doing, John offers us both a picture of what full-bodied, robust Christianity looks like and teaches us the way into that kind of life. So it's like a physical therapy patient having to be reminded and relearn every little tiny mechanic it takes to take one step after another John is reminding us how to walk in the light, which is where we'll find the fullest fullness, the completest completeness, and the best better we could hope for. John is giving us the best resolution we could make. So if you, like me most years, are tired of the same old, same old New Year's madness that says we'll do better this year, than this passage for us. If we are ready to get honest with God and each other that we are just remarkably incapable of fixing ourselves, then we're ready to shift all our weight off ourselves and onto Jesus. There, we'll find something actually better. Now, John starts a little bit cheeky with a little jab at these false teachers, okay? The first words of this letter are, that which was from the beginning which is basically John saying, look, I don't care what anyone else says. What I have told you and what I am going to tell you didn't originate with me, and it's nothing new. What I'm about to say is consonant. It's in line with everything you've heard from the very beginning to now. Nothing has changed in what we believe. And then here in verse 5, 
he picks up that thought to tell us, well, what was heard from the beginning? And here's what he says. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. I love that in John's mind, the whole entirety of the Christian message find its heartbeat with this reality that God is light without any darkness. Who doesn't love light? Who's ever met somebody who preferred darkness to the light? Darkness is the thing that makes what's typically ordinary and normal completely terrifying. I am 28 years old, but when I turn the basement lights off, I still run up the stairs, okay? I don't know what's behind me in the dark. It's darkness. Nobody prefers the dark to the light. When you go around and look at Christmas lights, who's sitting there going, guys, the darkness is so beautiful tonight. Did you see it? That would be absurd. We go around and we look at the lights because light is this thing that communicates everything that's pure and illuminating and captivating. Light gives us a, a burning hope and inspires us to get up out of the mire of inky darkness and to step into the light with God. So you probably don't know this yet. Um, I am a huge Lord of the Rings nerd. Judge me if you will. But I have found just an endless well of encouragement and inspiration from those books. And I'm reading them right now, so you're going to get a reference. But Late in the series, one of the main characters, Sam, he's in the big bad land of Mordor, and it's dark, and it's nasty, and it's always hazy, and they can't really see anything, and there's nothing green, and there's no good water, and it's just a terrible place to be. And Sam is having a hard time having hope in this place, and he's laying on his back, looking up at the sky, and he sees a star break through the clouds, and Tolkien writes this, for like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. Into the constant, hazy, semi-darkness of our world, and even into ourselves, John clears away the clouds for a minute so that we can see and take a peek at a thought so far away from us so foreign to us, but clear and cold and forever beyond the reach of darkness, that God is light and his light shines down to us. Now, definitely, John would be thinking that God is light in the sense that by him, we can rightly see the world around us, right? Light is what helps you see everything in the world. But probably more specifically, John is thinking about God being light in the sense that God is everything clean and pure, you know, God is just, God is good, God is ethical, God doesn't do anything wrong, he doesn't sin, right? Which sounds like the most obvious thing in the world, but here's the truth, and we can embrace this today. Functionally, we don't believe that most of the time. So there's a book called Gentle and Lowly, it's probably the most important book I've ever read next to the Bible, and in there, the author says that because of the work of sin in us, we are deeply suspicious about God. Despite what we might say we know to be true about him, we have serious misgivings about him. By example, and this is horribly embarrassing, but I'm gonna do it anyway. When I turned eight or nine years old, there was a movie on Disney called The 13th Year, okay? And in that movie, 
the main character starts to turn into a merman on his 13th birthday, which I thought was the coolest thing ever. So naturally, I prayed that God would turn me into a merman on my 13th birthday. Clearly, it did not happen. And you can imagine that when I realized it wasn't going to happen for me, what I thought about God. Well, I know God can do anything he wants to, and he always hears my prayers, so he must be holding out on me. God is keeping the best for himself, which sounds ridiculous, right? It sounds crazy for me to say that, but we think things like this all the time. We wonder if God will really do in the future what he said he will, because honestly, we're not so sure about what he's doing now. And sometimes we think we could do a better job than he is sometimes. We know that God loves us, but we think it must be kind of reluctantly with a sigh. He's just kind of like, I guess I have to keep going with this one. We hear he forgives sinners, but I mean, I don't know about you, but come on, has he seen me? I, I give him a run for his money. He has to be one bad day away from just giving up on me forever. He won't really stick with me forever. There has to be a part of God that's just plain tired of it, even if it's shoved way down. We're suspicious about God. And Gentle and Lowly goes on to say that the whole of redemptive history, meaning the whole Bible, is really God correcting our incorrect view about him so that we can confidently approach him knowing who he is and who we really are. So contrary to our misgivings about him, John tells us there is no darkness at all in God. The wording here would be terrible English, but it's the most emphatic Greek possible. There's a lot of double negatives here. And basically what John is saying is, guys, God is light and in him ain't no darkness, nothing whatsoever, not ever, not gonna be none. There is no darkness in God, nothing hidden, no falsehood, no deceit, no dishonesty, no half-heartedness, no empty promises or ulterior motives. God has nothing to hide from us because God has no darkness in him. While we might even have the light of the gospel in us and still have little pockets of darkness hidden in our hearts, God does not. God is not like us. He exists in perfect naked openness and complete comfort in being that way, which is I don't know about you, totally foreign to me. And that means God, on his part, lives in perfect relationship with himself and even, if we're open to it, with us. He is light. And where he goes, the light shines out and breaks up the fog of darkness. And the whole message of the Bible, John says, is that God is inviting us to walk in that light with him. Look at verse seven, it's the next one, Will. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And then, oh, I didn't put the next one, did I? But it says, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Fellowship with one another, and the blood of his son cleanses us from all sin. That doesn't sound too bad, does it? If I came to you today and said, okay, so, I have two paths you can choose from, okay? One is going to offer real moments of pleasure, okay? And guys, we'd be lying if we deny that sin offers real pleasure, okay? It does. That's what makes it so seductive. But so one will offer real moments of pleasure and it's going to promise freedom from your guilt and shame. You'll never feel those again. But here's what it means by that. 
You'll walk down a road of questionable morality so long that right and wrong will become just a neutral gray in your eyes. And you won't know where you're going, where you should be going, or even where you want to be going anymore. How can you feel guilt if you don't know what's wrong? But how can you feel real good, lasting pleasure if you don't know what's good? The freedom and pleasure that road offers will come at the cost of hurting yourself and the ones you love and a gnawing, biting, feverish anxiety to hide, to retreat further and further away from anyone and everyone, even yourself, further into the darkness, where your only friends will be shame and paranoia and fear until you're actually afraid to be seen in the light. Or, or the other path will take you down a steeper, narrower, more difficult way. And yes, the Christian life is in one sense more difficult. It is. And on that road, you're going to have just enough to make it along the way. You probably won't have excess, but you have the promise that at the end of the road is going to be a house just busting at the seams with everything good you could ever imagine, like Thanksgiving dinner and Christmas presents and, I don't know, your favorite TV show. Just everything you could ever want will be in this place and a party, the Bible tells us, like we've never imagined. This is going to be life to the fullest. It is going to take you on a road out of the darkness and into a well-lit path at the risk of being seen and exposed as we really are, yes, but at the great gift of being known and finally embraced. You won't have to worry about losing the path. You won't have to fear a hidden turn that takes you where you never wanted to go because you've already been told where you're going and you can see every step you take along the way. Oh, and the whole road brings you deeper into a sense of freedom from and joy in place of your shame and guilt because you have nothing left to hide. Everything's in the open. So if I asked you which would you choose, who in their right mind this morning would say, oh yeah, I want that dark path. That sounds way better to me. You'd think that person was crazy, and you would be right. They would be acting insane. So if we're in agreement that we'd rather walk in the light, that second path, are we doing it? Friends, that the product of walking in the light is that we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin, then we have to ask ourselves, are we experiencing consistently that kind of Christianity? And as I was challenged with this, honestly, I don't know that I am. Do you feel the forgiveness of Jesus in your deepest spirit, so much so applied to you and your sin, that you find yourself being drawn closer to God and deeper into fellowship with one another? John's not talking here about sin in a, a, a macro level, general sense. He's not talking about the sin of the world as an idea. He's not even talking about your sin nature, really. Like, you know, we have a propensity, a tendency. We lean towards sinning when the option is there for us, okay? He's not talking about those. It's one thing to say that Jesus died for the sin of the world or that Jesus' forgiveness frees us from our sin nature, which in our thinking really means that Jesus has kind of canceled our debt and paid for a certain amount of credit on our account, but on our end, it's up to us to use up that credit until it's gone, and then we don't really know what we're gonna do. It's one thing to know that. It's another thing entirely to know in confidence that Jesus died to cleanse you from your sins, all your sins, 
even the ones you know are there right now, today. It's one thing to say, would Jesus forgive me for my sin back then, at that point, when I first believed in him? It's another thing to know that Jesus' forgiveness is an ongoing offer, still freely given, not just one time back then, but even today. Jesus is as ready and willing to forgive you of your sin today as he was back whenever that was for you. He's not like you and me. When someone does something wrong to us, we might forgive them once or twice, okay? But if the nature of our ongoing relationship with them is that they keep doing the same thing and keep coming to us to ask for forgiveness, we're eventually going to get tired of it, right? There is going to come a point where we're not happy to be forgiving them anymore. We're frustrated with them. We're kind of sick of it at this point. And we think Jesus must be like that too. Jesus might have been happy to forgive me for all my sin back when I first became a Christian, but I have messed up so many times since then. He's got to be done with me. He's got to be frustrated with me. He can't possibly want to forgive me anymore. John corrects our thinking. Verse nine, Will. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So John says, Jesus has no qualms forgiving our sins. He's faithful and just to do it. Jesus isn't put off by it. The question is, who is John talking about here? Does he mean Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us when we come to faith? In other words, is John talking about justification? That moment when Jesus' sacrifice is applied to us, our guilt is gotten rid of, and we are set right with God. Or does he mean that, yes, Jesus did justify us and forgive us then, but that he is also currently faithful and just to forgive us now in our continued need for forgiveness? So that's kind of in the clouds and way out there. Practically speaking, why is this important to you and me? Because it does not take a PhD theologian, of which I am not, to realize that we still sin. And we still need the forgiveness and grace of Christ applied to us. So if John means that Jesus is ready and willing to forgive our sins when we first come to him, what do we do with our ongoing need for forgiveness? What comfort is there for me when I continue to sin and need a savior? Where will we take our neediness now? And you might not have thought about it in those words before, but if you've ever been reluctant to come to Jesus quickly and immediately after sinning, if you don't have a continued sense of weakness and neediness before him as a humble screw up, if you, if you even right now are thinking, man, I just wish that I felt Jesus's forgiveness. I wish I knew that I was good with him then you're getting it, guys. If the forgiveness of Jesus just resets our debt balance to zero and gives us a certain amount of credit, but we're left on our own after that, how is that really any better for us? And how is that better than the Christianity the false teachers offered? If we're gonna end up in sin either way, then might as well go their way. Here's the good news. That's not what's happening here. 
The gospel is that Jesus loves needy sinners, of which you and I are still. That's who 1 John is written to. Chapter 2, John says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. John is not affirming what the false teachers say. He is not saying that sin doesn't really matter, that Jesus will forgive us anyway, that we can do whatever we want and it will be all right. Nothing like that. John is serious about sin because Jesus is serious about sin. Because if sin doesn't matter, or if realistically there's nothing really fundamentally wrong with us, then we make God a liar, John's words. We make God a liar, and his word is not in us. I think David Allen, uh, a commentator, pegs it perfectly. He says, how often do we as Christians sin hoping that God will not think so severely of our sin as the Bible says he does? How often do we flatter ourselves with excuses for our sins, such as, God is merciful, he won't be that hard on me. Surely he doesn't expect me to always be holy and self-denying. That pegged me right down, man. Guys, if God doesn't treat sin as a big a deal as it is, you and I would be in a dark world without hope. God sent Jesus, the light of the world, to be the atonement for our sins because he takes sin seriously. So John is telling us we cannot, we can never settle for making peace with our sin or coming to embrace our sinful nature as just, you know, inevitable. Like, well, God knows I'm going to sin sometimes, so it's not that big a deal, right? He'll forgive me. We cannot settle for that. To use John's words, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Walking in the light, at least, means grappling with the real severity of our sin and striving to sin less as we become more like Christ by his grace. But it's not like John and, you know, God for that matter, are out of touch with reality, okay? God knows who we are. And he has not left our ongoing relationship with him and are growing to become more like him through faith and Jesus up to us. Again, John says, uh, next one, well, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So the picture here is, okay, you are standing on trial in the throne room of God. Satan, your accuser, uh, stands up, and he is the prosecutor, and he accuses you to the judge, God the Father. He says, do you see how this one is messed up? They have broken your law. They are guilty, dirty, unclean, God. They deserve nothing but a swift kick of the bucket. And Jesus, our defender, our advocate, stands up and says, yes, yes, Father, they, they are guilty. But I answered for them on the cross. Their sentence has already been taken care of, all of it, and they're under my care now. And I just picture God the Father has to lean back in his seat and be like, well, that about clears it up. Sentence is not guilty based on the merit of Jesus. And this is happening all the time for us, guys. Whenever we sin and the accuser, the loser that he is, comes to us throwing his weight around, Jesus is right there refuting him again. Not saying we can toss it out because our sin doesn't really matter, but that we're safely cared for in his abiding, willing forgiveness. Martin Luther, uh, not 
Jr. from the 60s, but Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, in his typical gruff fashion, he once said this. So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. I could run through a brick wall on that statement. That is so rich. Where Jesus is, there I will be also. Here's where that brings us. God, existing in perfectly pure light, sees everything in us. Always has. There was never anything hid from him, which makes the fact that we try to hide all the more ridiculous. And yet still, seeing it all out of his abundant love for us, weak us, sinful us, failing, messed up us, God happily, readily, and joyfully gave Jesus to become our forever propitiation and advocate. When we were needy, God first loved us like this, and even now, as we are still needy, God loves us and Jesus Christ the same. So, let me ask again. If we can all agree that the experience of life God offers, this walking in the light, is so apparently and more appealing to our deepest desires and longings, and if John tells us that our inclusion in that life is built not on how awesome we are, but on the continued willing forgiveness and abiding of Jesus, are we experiencing that life? And if you are like me and say, man, I don't know that I really am, then how can we resolve together today to experience that more in 2021? Is there a way that we can actually feel the forgiveness of Jesus and the reality of deep fellowship with the family of God like never before and find more victory, freedom over our sin this year? Verse nine. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It is so simple, guys. The way forward for us in 2021 is not to delude ourselves with our own bigness again and think, yep, this is a year I'm really gonna get it this year. I've got this one down. The way forward is to get honest with God and with one another. And that means, buckle up, that means wounding our pride a little bit. Okay, well, a lot of it. That means confessing things out loud to God and to one another that we would honestly much rather not say out loud to anybody. That means letting go of our built-up defense of self-justification, the systems that we all have in place to defend ourselves. That means breaking any friendship we have with sin and sending it packing. That means digging down deep into the weight of our own brokenness and sitting there with it. And honestly, that is scary, guys. That is scary. It is to me. I don't want to see myself in broad daylight, and I definitely don't want you to see me in broad daylight. I would rather stay in semi-darkness. I prefer that. I look better in semi-darkness. But I don't know about you. I just, I feel like, God, I've tried things on my own, and it got me nowhere. And I tried to hide, and it didn't work. So all I've got left, the only option, is to embrace that what I have, the only thing I have, is a, a big bag of neediness and sinfulness, and you say you're faithful and just to receive people like that. So I'm trusting in what you say 
and I'm coming to you now. Will you receive me, reluctant as I am, messed up as I am, totally awkward as I am? I can't promise I won't fail again, but I want to try things your way this time. Will you take me? And Jesus, straight from his mouth, tells us he will receive us and will never turn us away, ever. Because as John says, he has no reason to. Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us when we get honest. No qualms with it. So what do we have to lose coming to Jesus this year? Is our world so good right now and Jesus so uh, uncertain that coming to him has too much risk involved with it? All we can lose is our pride, which what good did that ever do us? And our fear and our shame and a long line dissatisfying relationships. But if we will do this, if we will walk in the light, if we will come to him and get honest, we're going to see our community and ourselves wonderfully changed by Jesus. We're going to find we care so much less about ourselves and start really enjoying what God has given us. We're going to see a community where change is really possible because the forgiveness of Jesus is powerfully at work among his people. We're going to find a depth of friendship we didn't even know was possible as we confess and are truly seen by people. We're going to feel the gospel working in us deep in our bones and all the way out. And most amazingly, we're going to start radiating the light and people will be drawn to him. So what are we waiting for? No beating around the bush. No dragging our feet. Here's our chance right now. Lauren is uh, going to make her way up and play some soft music during this time. But the point of this moment is not to hear how beautifully Lauren plays. And she will play beautifully. She always does. The point of this moment, this brief moment, before we come to the table together as followers of Christ, is that when we take this bread and this cup in just a minute, we are agreeing with Christ together with one voice that we need him, that we have sinned and do sin and put our trust for better, not in ourselves, but in him. We're not trusting in how great we are, but how great he is. So as Warren prays, this is a moment, plays, not praise, you do that too. This is a moment for you to walk in the light with God. No hiding, friends, no pretense. Let's bring it all to him, whatever you've got, whatever has made you reluctant to be all in, whatever has made you second guess Jesus's forgiveness for you, whatever has made you fearful to have real Christian fellowship, whatever has made you settle for returning to the same sins over and over, let's get honest. As you take this moment, uh, if you are a follower of Christ and you do not have a communion cup, our deacons will be making their way around. Just stick a hand up and they'll bring you a cup but take this moment between you and God. This is your time.